Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast. I'm your host, John, and today I'm going to be talking a little bit about feudalism and the social class in your RPGs. But first of all, cue the music. Now, before we really get started, quick disclaimer, this isn't going to be an in-depth look at feudalism. I'm no expert on this, and I'm sure there are people out there with far greater knowledge than me on the subject. I'm going to confine my discussion to a broad overview, and some of the things I think that we could take from it for use in D&D and other pseudo-medieval RPGs. Okay, so first of all, what do I mean when I say pseudo-medieval? Well, many of our D&D games are set in a fantastical world that borrows to a greater or lesser extent from popularised and often modernised tropes of medieval Europe. Often this confines itself to there being a noble class, with a peasant class below them, and maybe being a burgeoning merchant class so we can crowbar all those tasty, tasty guilds and whatnot into the game. However, often these are little more than stage dressing that doesn't really have a great impact on the game. It's a vague background thing to just suggest a medieval flavour for our adventures. Now, there's nothing wrong with this. Hell, fantasy authors have been writing books using distorted or exaggerated versions of medieval times since long before D&D existed. I think it's a shame, though, that that's where it stops in a lot of games. I mean, hell, I'm not immune to this. Sometimes you just want to kill some orcs and not delve into the ties between a landowner and his tenants. But it could definitely be some interesting fodder for RPGs, and some games have leaned more heavily into this aspect of the medieval setting. And I'll talk about a few of those later at the end of the episode. So, how do we define feudalism? Well, very broadly speaking, feudalism, although not a term used at the time, it was coined much later, is a term used to describe a series of obligations that flourished in Europe between the 9th and 15th century. It was a way of describing a relationship between those who held the land and all the influence and those who lived on that land, exchanging services, loyalty, and often physical support in return for protection and the right to work the land. Although there are still discussions about the delineation between various classes in the medieval period, and certainly there were regional differences, in this episode we're going to confine ourselves mostly to the three most popularly known classes. And those are the nobility and the royalty, who were sort of at the top, the church, and those who worked the land, i.e. the peasantry. By no means were these classes divided along such simple lines in actuality, but this is certainly enough for our purposes in a D&D game. Although if you want to add in a merchant class, then they'd probably sit above the peasantry, but below the nobility. New money, if you will. Powerful because of their wealth, but without that ancient lineage and history backing them up. Because let's face it, guilds and various trading organisations are a staple of D&D, and they're just plain fun. So I'm not going to judge you if you put them in your games. I mean, I'm certainly going to. So we come to nobles and their vassals. One of the core concepts of feudalism is that nobles held a great deal of land, often granted to them by a king or a royal, in return for their support. This land would then be parceled out to their vassals, they were granted possession of it and the right to work it, in return for providing services to the lord. This might take the form of a regular tax of their produce to be delivered to the lord. It may also involve military service with vassals, contributing people to an army, should the lord ever march to war for his king. This could be an interesting start for a campaign, maybe a DCC funnel or something similar. The PCs are all people from the same village, vassals to a noble who are called up to fight in a distant conflict. 
Becoming a vassal to a lord would often involve an official ceremony and the swearing of oaths of loyalty. So, how could you use this in your game? Well, the obvious example is that of the cruel noble who exploits and beats down his vassals. Now, this doesn't make a lot of sense historically, but it is an established trope. Perhaps the downtrodden vassals have saved up some of their possessions to hire the PCs to free them from their cruel master. But even if the player characters are successful, there will undoubtedly be consequences. After all, the noble who has been overthrown will no doubt have family, and the fife won't simply be abandoned by the nobility. There may be a stern crackdown following such a mini-revolution to discourage other fifes from following suit. I think that perhaps a more interesting idea might be to turn it on its head and have a noble who genuinely cares for his fife and his vassals hire the PCs. Perhaps he's noticed a fall-off in his dues, or a change in the attitude of his vassals. Knowing that he would be unable to blend in with the people who serve him, the noble hires the PCs to go undercover and find out what is going on. Perhaps some sort of cult has infiltrated the people of the Fife and is turning their thoughts to dark ends. Or perhaps it's the tax collector or some other functionary of the noble who is squeezing the vassal without his lord's knowledge and is causing the whispers of rebellion. And I can't help but think about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, when I think of that and the excellent Sheriff of Nottingham portrayal done by Alan Rickman. The functionary could be blaming the Lord for additional taxes, etc., and pocketing the difference, setting up the Lord as the target of the people's discontent while they continue to line their pockets with the money that they're getting. Next we come to the church, and although they somewhat fall outside the noble and vassal relationships, the church was very powerful at certain points in history due to the amount of land they held. Richer people would often seek the favour of God by donating to the church or paying for indulgences in some faiths. And essentially an indulgence is a series of actions or prayers that must be undertaken in order to achieve forgiveness for certain action in the eyes of God. At some points in history, rich people could pay to have members of the church undertake these indulgences on their behalf, with the money gained flowing into the church coffers, of course. Obviously, this varies by faith in the particular church or house of worship being discussed, and a complete discussion of the many and various faiths throughout history is well, well beyond the scope of this episode. But again, how could you use this in your game? Well, the obvious plotline is a church that is a front for some sort of nefarious cult. And the corrupt church that has grown fat on the sweat and toil of its believers is also a very, very well-established trope that's been almost done to death, to be honest. Although, again, if this works for your game, absolutely, go for it. After all, there's very little that is truly new in RPGs, although you can try and put an interesting spin on it. Another undercover operation could be the PCs being hired by the nobility to investigate a church that seems to be becoming a little bit too powerful, and that has the nobles worried. After all, certainly here in the UK, we know what happens when the, the nobility and the church, a rift starts being created between them, and they sort of go their separate ways, and eventually the nobility or the monarchy will try and crack down on the church, and it causes all manner of chaos and bloodshed so we've talked a little bit in very basic terms about sort of feudalism and the different social classes but how do adventurers fit into this well in most D&D games it's obvious that the PCs are a breed apart from your common dung farmer even if you're only a level one fighter or thief by sheer virtue of having a character class you're a cut above the common man 
nor in most games is character class any indicator of status, since a princely noble could quite easily be a levelless human, in the same way as the head abbot of a monastery doesn't necessarily have to have loads of ranks in the cleric class. So how do adventurers fit into the feudal idea if they're separate from the normally established social classes? Well, to my mind, there's a few ways you could handle this. The first is just to ignore it. Your character class has no bearing on your social standing. If your PC was born as a peasant, you may now be a 10th level thief, but as far as anyone important is concerned, you're still just a peasant, albeit probably a very capable one. This works better for some classes than others. If you're a member of a class where you get magical or obvious abilities, then you become kind of hard to ignore. After all, a noble can mock you for being a peasant all they like, but if you can set fire to their holdings with a wiggle of your fingers and some arcane words, it becomes kind of harder to ignore you. Although, if you do set fire to those holdings, again, undoubtedly there will be consequences for this kind of thing. It could be interesting adventure fodder, though. After all, what do the snooty noble academics who study magics think of someone from base stock finding a way to unravel the mysteries of the cosmos? And the sharp books by Bernard Cromwell come to mind when I think about this. In those books, a man of lowly stock is promoted to being an officer after saving the life of the future Duke of Wellington. And he has to struggle and face prejudice and mockery from all manner of people who are ostensibly higher on the social ladder than him, who have purchased their commissions in the army. Another option is that adventurers might exist outside the normal social classes. Again, this is a perfectly valid approach, but it does raise some interesting questions. In this case, how does one officially become an adventurer? After all, if one's going to have this special status, it's probably not as simple as declaring yourself an adventurer. Perhaps you have to purchase a license. I mean, let's face it, if a government can find a way to tax something, they will. Maybe you have to be granted the title by a noble or a person of appropriate status. This in turn raises the question of how do you get them to agree to this and what proof do you bear to show that you are an official adventurer? Also, is there a governing body for adventurers and who administrates it if there is? It's unlikely the rulers of your campaign world are just going to allow adventurers to run around willy-nilly in this scenario, so who's going to keep an eye on them? One obvious solution is that perhaps it's older and more experienced adventurers. After all, who would have the power to deal with recalcitrant adventurers if not for more powerful members of their own kind? And what pledges or proofs of loyalty do the land's rulers demand from these adventurer lords? You could easily import guilds here as well if you so wished. A third way of looking at this is that adventurers are a social class unto themselves, in addition to the more standard faux historical social classes that we're talking about. If you go down this route, again you'll need to decide how someone becomes part of the adventurer class. After all, social mobility wasn't really a thing back in medieval times, at least not as we think of it today. Perhaps you're born into the adventurer class. If your mother and father are adventurers, then your social destiny is to become an adventurer yourself. And this could lead to some potentially interesting story ideas with NPCs who were born into the adventurer social class, but don't actually fancy a dangerous and possibly short-lived life of dungeon delving. Maybe a person who commits some sort of crime is given a choice of serving their sentence as an adventurer. They risk dangers and tithe the wealth they gain to the crown, and once their term is up, they either return to their old lives or are now official adventurers. So it's almost a form of 
community service in this case. If they're going to be a separate social class, you would also need to decide where the class sits in relation to the others. I would suggest above peasant but below the nobility and clergy, roughly on par with the not-so-ridiculously wealthy merchants. So I hope that's given you some ideas of how social class could add some interesting story ideas to your games. I'm just going to round this episode off by mentioning a few games I think do this pretty well. And the first of these is Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. Woofer Up is a careers-based game where the careers you take determine your path, what skills you can learn, etc. And although there's no social class stat as such in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, it's pretty obvious what class a person belongs to based on their career. After all, a person who starts their adventuring life as a rat catcher is going to be perceived very differently from someone who is a squire or a noble. Then we have Warlock, Traitor's Edition, and this game that I talked about recently is a mashup of advanced fighting fantasy and the careers system of Wolfrup. So unsurprisingly, it handles this in a very similar way to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. And the final game I want to talk about is Lion and Dragon. This is based on D&D with a focus on trying to capture a more authentic medieval feel. When you're generating your player character, you roll for your social class, although there are some outsiders to this order, and most likely you find yourself as one of the following. An ex-slave or serf, a peasant, a villain, city-born, knightly nobility, lordly nobility, or aristocracy. And there are brief descriptions given of these classes and how they can have effect on other game mechanics such as trials, etc. And obviously NPC reactions and role-playing situations. So there you are, there's a few different approaches that you can use with regards to social class. Now whether you decide to go a whole hog and have it officially written down on a character sheet, or whether you decide to do a stat for it, I believe that there were some of the, the sort of optional books for D&D 3.5, or it might have been AD&D, where sort of social class was offered as a stat. But you don't necessarily have to go down that route. You just have it jotted on the character sheet. But even just thinking about this will inform how you have your NPCs react to the player characters, what the PCs can get away with, how much sort of social clout and currency they wield in your campaign world, as well as which NPCs see them as allies, rivals and threats, or if they're beneath these NPCs' notice. And just thinking about those ideas can create interesting player character and NPC dynamics and also suggest ready-made sort of plot ideas for you to use in your game so hope you've enjoyed this episode if you want to get in touch with us maybe tell us how you've used social class in your role-playing games or even if you don't like it do you love the idea of using it or do you think nah that's too complicated whatever your opinions are on it if you want to get in touch, you can do so in a few different ways. You can leave us a voicemail message, either using SpeakPipe or Anchor. There'll be a link in the description of this episode. Or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we speak to you again, take care, stay safe, and whenever you're playing, have fun.